Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. I actually made a quarter of a million dollars on it, which was an astonishing amount of money for me at the time. Remember, I had just left the public service. I made two and a half years income on it. It was the first time, in fact, it was a lottery ticket that sort of weirdly changed my life and it took me a long time to work out that I'd done it all wrong, incidentally. On today's episode, part two of my interview with the long and short investor John Hempton, Chief Investment Officer and co-founder of Bronte Capital and star of the recent drug short episode in Netflix's Dirty Money series. Today, John reveals how he picks good quality stocks to invest in that often make a small but critical ingredient in a larger process, why he believes winner-takes-all global companies might be beneficial for investors, but they're bad for economies, and how much of his portfolio is short and how much is long. He also opens up about the rough start Bronte Capital had in the tumult of the GFC. And while Bronte's returns have since been successful, he makes some surprising admissions about his strategy in the past few years. And he gives some unexpected tips for young investors starting out. But Hempton is at his most reverential and insightful when talking of the crucial importance that his bosses and mentors, former Secretary of the Treasury Ken Henry and Platinum Asset Management stock picker guru Care Nielsen, have played in both his personal and professional lives. We began by talking about Bronte's business model, trying to make money out of shorting crummy stocks, as he calls them, in order to then invest in top draw shares around the world. I spend probably half my time on the good quality businesses. Our typical sort of good quality business is somebody that does a small but important part of a big thing. If you make cars, people are very price competitive about cars. If that car looks $500 expensive relative to the Holden, you're probably going to buy the Holden, right? The ability to charge up, you know, in the commodity car market is pretty hard. And most car companies make margins of about 5%. And it's not a very good business, right? They're cyclical. They tend to run out of money in bad times. If you ran Holden in Australia, it never really made any money despite huge subsidies, right? Just wasn't a very good business. But if you could find, and people sell this as a scam as well, some critical chemical that makes a car 5% better, but it only weighs a few grams. You can charge a lot of money for that. And sometimes they're scams. Firepower was a scam. You know, this idea that there was this chemical that I could put in the fuel that would make it 20% more efficient, right? Well, you know, if somebody's worked out a way of burning fuel 20% more efficiently, I'd like to know. It's a very important invention, but it wasn't plausible, right? But sometimes it's real. So we're interested in things that are small but critical parts of big things because they tend to be good businesses. Now, there are also- Like? Well, I mean, there are also good businesses. I'll give you a classic example. Selling to female vanity is a good business generally. As a rule of thumb, don't stand between a pile of money and a woman's desire to look better. Um, Sounding sexist already, but go ahead. It's cosmetics. There are some male cosmetic businesses. But cosmetics is an astonishingly good business, right? You know, these things that you go and buy in David Jones for $70 a jar probably cost two to produce or three. That's fat margin, right? Your car has a 5% margin. Your jar of cosmetics has a margin that's astronomically higher. And the return on capital, the return on equity, the return on investment for a good cosmetic company makes a car company look pretty modest. It, It just drips money. Now, the thing about a good cosmetic company is it's a marketing trick that I don't understand. And and no, I'm not being sexist. There are male cosmetic companies, but they are very, very small fractions of the size of female ones, with the exception of Gillette, which was extremely profitable for a long time. Inside cosmetics are some active ingredients, and this is a fairly decent example. There have been Recipes for face creams that go back to Egyptian times. The recipes involved wool grease. And if you mixed wool grease with with some shea butter and thinned it out, 
you'd actually have something that answered the medical question, visibly reduces the appearance of wrinkles. (laughs) And visibly reduces the appearance of wrinkles is a real medical claim that women will pay decent money for. Of course. Some men will pay decent money for too, but I'm not being sexist. I'm just being realistic when I assume the customer here is female. And in the Egyptian times, this stuff stunk. And the woman would put it on her face and she'd sleep 300 metres away from her husband. And Helena Rubinstein, very, very famous cosmetic name, Mm. actually came from Australia. She grew up about 300 kilometres west of Melbourne in sheep country. I don't think I knew that. Okay. She um, started a cosmetic business originally in Melbourne. Amazing. And Cosmetics queen. And the business was based on face cream made from wool grease, which was the natural ingredient, and it stunk too. And then there was a company in England, in sheep country, and Ghoul in East Lancashire, which is now called Crota, but I don't know what it was called then. And Crota was the first company to pull the active ingredient out of wool grease. And you named it earlier, the active ingredient is lanolin. Lanolin will visibly reduce the appearance of wrinkles, but it doesn't stink. It's also a little bit hard and difficult to use, so you've got to do some nice chemical tricks to make it acceptable for a nice modern face cream. But Crota basically invented the um, modern face cream industry with their German partner, who was a chemist by the name of Mr. Beiersdorf, and his product was Nivea. And to this day, Nivea is the biggest face cream in Europe and Crota is the biggest supplier. But Crota spent the next 70 years doing neat things with lanolin and refining it in different ways and doing different things to make it have different characteristics. Now, there is a real trick here, which is that the lanolin comes from sheep and sheep walk through paddocks and paddocks have pesticides and herbicides on them. And if you are not careful, then your lanolin is going to contain trace ingredients of pesticides and herbicides. And if you're a brand manager from L'Oreal, a really bad day is when you have to recall the product because it has pesticides on it and you're selling pesticides for women to put on their face. That doesn't work very well commercially. So what Crota does is is they buy almost all the wool grease from all Australia and New Zealand wool. They put it through small batch processing where they put it through a um, mass spectrometer. And they can tell whether on the mass spectrometer whether any of the standard pesticides or herbicides are in there. And if that batch is painted, big batches just go. So they can't right? extract they the can't herbicide, extract it. the toxin. No, they just make sure that each batch is clean. And then they do all their refining stuff and they sell it to L'Oreal. Now, if you're L'Oreal, firstly, that bottle costs $70, but the ingredients cost three. The critical ingredient is lanolin and a couple of derivatives and some lipids that are also made by um, Crota. Now, I could buy those ingredients for 50 cents from Crota or I could buy them 25 cents from the other company. But I know that Crota has a 70-year history of doing mm. it and puts everything through mass and spectrometers. Get the, gets the and I can be out of very it. confident if I buy it from Crota that there's no pesticides in it. And from the L'Oreal brand manager's name, that's easy. I pay the extra 25 cents, right? Because it's the margins are so fat. So what you have is this small but critical ingredient that's hard to swap sold to a company that sells things at a fat margin. So do you buy Crota so or do you buy Crota. L'Oreal? Well, the pro- I'd, l- I'd like to own L'Oreal, but I honestly don't understand how you make a better face cream and how you market it. Hair dye is a really spectacularly good business as well. This is actually why you might buy L'Oreal. Almost all the good hair dye companies started as chemical companies. Mm-hmm. And L'Oreal started as a chemical company that was making industrial chemicals and actually has a bad history because it was co-opted by the Vichy government to make chemicals for the Nazis. But the chemical that they really perfected along the way turned out to be hair dye and then they sold all the rest. If you change your hairdresser, the colour changes slightly. A lot of women will tell you this. Most men don't know it. Now, colour matching, I mean, I, I, I say my wife could come home with green hair, but I wouldn't notice. But if you, she came home with slightly different coloured hair, her female friends would all notice, oh, she dyes her hair. <laughs> right? I mean, it's a very strange mm. world here. But that said, companies that sell the hair dye make it tricky to mix up so that if you change supplier or you change hairdresser, colour matching won't match. So you get glued. It's actually really addictive, not in a medical sense, but if you have a look at 
Almost sure. every consumer business went backwards in the global financial crisis. Head, I didn't. There are plenty of women who would starve themselves rather than have a grey part turn up. Right. How does this get to investing? Well, again, firstly, it's an addictive product. There's a very high switching cost. I don't know what you pay, but my guess is sort of a hundred and something dollars, of which the hair dye is six. It's a small but critical part of a big mm. process. It's a consumable. It's addictive. It's an extremely good business. Now, L'Oreal, L'Oreal? L'Oreal built its business not on makeup, but on hair dye. Mm. Right. Um, but the problem is that L'Oreal's hair dye business hasn't grown in about 10 years, and I do not understand why. And I've tried and tried and tried to work out why L'Oreal keeps losing share in hair dye, and I can't do it. Right? And this is a very typical sort of Bronte research task, because if I understood why, I could also work out whether it was going to change. Is it this movement that women say, oh, embrace the grey? No, because other hair dye businesses have grown quite nicely. Ah, okay. Now, Net-net, probably not. And there are a couple of issues. First one is that hair dye is a European business, not a Chinese business. And the cosmetic business is growing in China, but the colour matching problem doesn't exist in China to the same extent. And, you know, simply there's not very many colours of hair, whereas if you go to Europe, there are many, many colours of hair. Right? So that's part of what the issue is. It's much harder to grow in certain age. India should be a good market, but isn't. A lot of Asia, I get into trouble when I say this, but I used to go in the emerging markets to go visit hairdressers and I would try to check out what hair dyes they were using. And mostly the answer was Schwarzkopf, which is owned by a German company called Henkel. We used to own stock in Henkel. This is why I did it. And Schwarzkopf was strong in the Russian market and it was strong in a lot of Southeast Asia, also in India, but I've never visited them in India. And the sales force are colorists. These are women yeah. aged 20, 32 to 38, two kids at home who go visit hairdressers each day and teach them how to use the hair dye. And Henkel just hired every colorist they could. The global population of colorists exceeded 100,000 people at one stage. It was a very big business. Henkel hired them in India, they hired them in Asia. Um, so I go, go to hairdressers in emerging markets whenever I'm there and I go get a haircut because it's cheap, it's 50 cents rather than $25 or $30. But also because I can generally confirm my stories about hair dyes in emerging markets. And invariably, it's, they put on a shawl around you and it says mm. Schwarzkopf in mirror writing so that you can see Schwarzkopf mm -hmm. written clearly, correctly in the mirror. Anyway, I was in one in Bangkok, not a good place for a male to go to a hairdresser at five o'clock in the afternoon. The only customers, and this tells you because it's a one-colour market, the prostitutes doling themselves mm. up for the night. They told me I was very handsome. <laughs> <laughs> this, this was not the normal stock research. <laughs> I've told the story a few times, but it's sort of embarrassing really. <laughs> But I learned I was very handsome and I also learned that Henkel was telling the truth about the moaning the Thai market. I just didn't understand what the Thai market was. Now, as an investor, John Hempton is also a fan of other top quality, strong global companies that he calls the winner-takes-all companies, such as Amazon, Google, Apple and Australia's Atlassian. If the world is full of winner-takes-all businesses, which this world looks like, and this also, Amazon, Amazon Atlassian, Canva, and it's also very unequal because the winners become so big. And right? is that a good way to be? Good for economies to be like that? I prefer living in a more mm. equal society. The modern economy is throwing up something different. It's throwing up a large number of winner-takes-all businesses and whether those winner-take-all businesses are Atlassian or Canva, which is a small niche, but the winner will still take all, or whether they're at Amazon, which is a huge, huge, huge niche, and the winner will take all. He's already taking a lot, and he's yeah, so, well, so wealthy. He, he well, it's the, it's the biggest winner-take-all business in the world, and so he winds up being the richest person in the world, right? But that society, that change... It's not driven by policy at all. It's driven by technology. Mm. Then you get horrible secondary parts of it, which is that these winner-take-all businesses have become very powerful mm. and political lobbying in the United States is bought. And so you get the politics reinforcing the economics. 
Are you invested in Amazon? No. Apple? Any of those big US? Well, we have a very large stake in Google. Google, Alphabet. Right. Um, We have an indirect stake in Apple, but it's um, very indirect. And you're talking long. Yes. But uh, Apple, the problem with those is that I I tend to like little nichey businesses because I understand them and I have an edge. And smaller cap than than Apple. Mind you, the, the, the degree to which winner takes all businesses have dominated the stock market is astonishing, right? So, I mean, my, my one we do own is Visa, right? And Visa just does the one cent interchange, the one cent in a hundred dollar interchange for which they provide the network. Now, there is absolutely no way that you could compete providing that network. Right, you'd have to sign up all the merchants, and you'd have to sign up all the cards. Starting now against Visa or Mastercard. Starting card against Visa yeah. or Mastercard, who between them control the network and share it. It's a completely antitrust thing. Everything that's ca- carried on Mastercard is carried on Visa, and vice versa. You can't compete, and moreover, they're only charging one cent per hundred dollars. Mm. And as they're only charging one cent per hundred dollars, there's not that much game in there, except that. These things have like $18 billion of revenue charging one cent per hundred dollars, right? It's astonishing how big and profitable they are. We own some of that. And you don't see that ending while credit cards are used? <laughs> no. Um, but, what about but, Apple Pay and all that? Do Visa uh, well, get Apple locked pay, out but of that? Apple Pay, when I put my credit use Google Pay, I put my credit card into my phone that's just a tap and Google gets some information Right, but they're but still riding on on visas. They still get the ones, yeah. and it's not worth Google building a network to save the one cent. They're really interested in other parts. Yeah. There's a very big business in IT generally, which is virtualized. You can almost always make a business where you find something physical and you can virtualize it, right? And in this case, they've virtualized a credit card. But there's an entire part of the business which is about virtualizing computers as well. Right. And I know this sounds very esoteric, but in the old days, you used to write software to run on a computer. And now you write software to run on a virtual computer, right? Which is a program that pretends it's a computer. And you don't deploy the software, you deploy the virtual computer. So you just put the virtual computer out into a software cloud, and that's how the cloud works. Just to clarify, how much of an investment do you have in Visa? It's about eight or 9% of our fund. So, Every dollar invested, we've got nine cents invested in Visa. That's quite it's a, a better, big, yeah, a big it's mistake. a big thing. But from the perspective of Visa, we're a net. You know, we're a reasonable sized fund, and that stake is still you know a hundred million Australian dollars or something like that. But, but ownership of Visa, it's tiny. but ownership of Visa, it barely barely registers. We're much more interested in things like Croda, the small company, than the big company. But when yeah, if I had registered where I had made mistakes over the last decade, it was not buying enough of the winner-takes-all businesses, right? There are several businesses that this is a modern feature of the world where the business, if you're the best cloud accounting software, to pick an Australian-New Zealand example, you're going to wind up being the biggest cloud accounting software company with the most customers and then you make the most profit and you can spend some of that profit making yourself better every year. And so in two years, five years, 10 years, you'll still be the biggest and best cloud accounting software company. That is a sustaining position and it's very hard to compete with. The world has become very full of winner-takes-all businesses, whether that winner-takes-all business be Amazon or Atlassian in Australia or Zero or um, So you like Visa. Zero, yes. Yes. You've talked about that right. but before. It, if I had my last 10 years again, I would have put all my money into winner-takes-all businesses. As an investor, they have been indescribably wonderful, and Australia has relatively few of them. As a citizen, they're not so indescribably wonderful because winner-takes-all businesses produce a very unequal world. Yeah. Right? So what you're seeing with Amazon is thousands of small businesses, mostly small retailers, get squeezed. You're seeing just my local shops which used to be always occupied, about 25% of the shops are now vacant. You're seeing vacant storefronts across the world. And people who were once 
respectable small business people with decent middle-class incomes are being squeezed out of existence. And at the other end, you have Mr. Bezos, who has done more to reduce prices than anybody in the world, getting rich beyond anybody's imagination. He's the first person whose wealth crossed $100 billion. I think you needed 12 figures to delineate his wealth. It's sort of hard to even comprehend how rich that is, mm. right? Um, I mean, I, I, uh, one way of thinking about it is it's sort of 15% of the housing stock of Australia. Mm. Right? It's, All um, right. Uh, no, that's actually a good way of thinking yeah. about it as an Australian. Yeah. But, this, but you we, didn't do that. You didn't we, invest we did, in just the best winner-takes-all stocks. You invested no, we invested in, a lot in of some of No, we shorted a lot of fraudsters. Shorted a lot of If I'd had my time again, we would have still shorted fraudsters. Right, but we would have invested all of the profits we got from that in winner takes all businesses. Do you have a short list? I don't want a half an hour discussion about it, but a short list of how you pick frauds. Oh yeah, or or what are the signs normal people could look for? Now that's hard, right? Because there's a there are signs that we look for, and then there are signs that normal people are capable. Okay, we'll say what you look for. Well. The first and most prominent thing that we look for is the people, right? We look for their records. We've computerized this. We look for the, in a gold company, we will look at the geologist and the geologist's records. We know people who have certified gold reserves in the past that weren't there, and there's a reasonable bet that they'll certify them in the future that not there. So the they're second, liars. And- the second thing we tend to look for and this is a hard thing, is not understanding the accounts. Now, that most one of the dirty secrets is that most people can't read accounts, including most people in the financial business. It's absolutely shocking to me how many people in the financial business can't read accounts. Well, I promise you I can, and I can really, really well. And if I don't understand the accounts there's a reasonable bet that I'm not meant to understand the accounts. That they're hiding something. They're hiding something. Now, it's so shocking to me that most people, when they, they look at what the bottom line is, but they don't look at all the middle lines. I spend a lot of time looking at the middle lines. We move on to talk about Australian company Freedom Foods, currently in a stock trading halt that the company requested. It's had senior executive ructions and changes, with management announcing to the ASX in late June 2020 that it's engaged legal firm Ashurst and PwC to advise and assist with ongoing investigations into Freedom Foods' financial position. Now, Hempton raises a few possible hypotheses, including serious mismanagement of inventory and equipment. When the company was asked by one analyst on a recent conference call about any possible fraud activity, the chairman answered, and I quote, we are undertaking further investigations, close quotes. We genuinely don't know what has happened yet. I have my suspicions, but I could be wrong. But when we looked at it, it was, there are a couple of things going on. First, it was doing businesses that lots of other people do. It was making cereal for Audi or, you know, no-name branded cereals, some branded cereals, but the branded cereals were small parts of its business, and it was processing milk, which is a sort of big industrial business. It was some of those processes were taking out lactoferrin, which is a high-value component, but other things were just ordinary processing. But it was fatter margin than all the competitors, and the stock was up 10x. And so that sort of jumped out at us. When you do something that no one else does or you're one of these winner-take-all businesses and you're up 10x, I can sort of understand that. When you're a milk processor or your customer is Woolworths for no brand and you're up 10x, that's unlikely. And the reason it's unlikely is that Woolworths is extremely good at squeezing its suppliers. I mean, Woolworths is famously good at squeezing. I mean, the business model of Woolworths is we squeeze suppliers so that we can give lower prices mm. to you. And then over time, we become bigger and bigger, right? Because we're lower price, right? The business model is squeeze suppliers mm-hmm. and pass the bulk of it on. Not all of it on, but the bulk of it on. 
To consumers, to consumers, consumers, yeah. Right, and that's been the business model of discount retailers forever. We squeeze suppliers, we pass it on, we become big. So when you're supplying Woolworths and your stock is up 10x. 10 times. 10 times. That looks anomalous to me. And I have an old- Because you know that Woolworths or Aldi or Coles would have squeezed squeezed these people almost to death. Yes, Right, everybody who supplies Woolworths and Audi and Coles yeah. gets squeezed to death, except that Freedom Foods makes a lot of money. So right? you are. So there's an a, alarm bell. There's for an you. alarm bell, and that alarm bell had us looking, and we were picking it because of the alarm bell, right? Not because of people. You know, normally, we, normally when I'm short something, it's because there's a person associated who I think is a fraudster, and I'm not going to tell you who it is because I get sued. But in this case. Freedom Foods was doing something that looked like a miracle. In its and business. In its yeah. business. And when something is too good to be true, it often is too good to be true. So we looked at it and here was what we noticed. We noticed that they had about 100 days of inventory, meaning if you looked at the total inventory and divided it by the cost of goods sold, there was about 100 days of stuff in warehouses or wheat sitting there or pre-processed milk. And if I go looked at competitors, say a milk processor like Bega Foods, you know, Bega Cheese, Bega Cheese yep. or um, the American cereal makers, so Kellogg's, Post, General Mills, they all had 50 days of inventory, plus or minus two days. So roughly half the inventory they had half that the inventory. Freedom Foods had. The other thing is that every $100 of sales at Freedom Foods had about $1.60 of capital equipment. And every $100 of sales had only about $0.70 at capital equipment at the other four names that I mentioned. So there's twice as much capital equipment. What Are you shorting them? I was short Freedom Foods. So at what point do you make the money out of it? Well, at the moment, the company has admitted problems. They haven't told us what all the problems are, but they have admitted to capitalising some expenses. And capitalising some expenses is take some expense that you thought you had and pretend to spend it on a machine. And they've also told us that they have excess inventory and that they're going to write about half the inventory off. But I mean, that's happened a lot before. Yes, but we're at a point where I literally can't know, right? Which is hypothesis A, they really do have excess inventory, right? And that they were just mismanaged. And that's the one that looks right here. Right. Hypothesis B is that the excess inventory never existed and the thing was a fraud. They have not backed that in their statements. They've only backed the mismanagement one. And I may go to my grave, never knowing what the answer is here. At what point do you make money? Well, the stock is suspended and they're going to come back and it will be priced at half what it currently is or a quarter of what it currently is. When it comes back to the market, yes, we will book a profit. And this was a tiny position. I mean, we had half of 1% of the fund short freedom foods at peak. And if it goes down 70%, we'll make 35 basis points, 0.35% of the fund. We have to do this hundreds and Mm. hundreds of times. Mm. Now, what I've told you here is also that I don't have proof of anything, right? I just have a reasonably articulable suspicion. All right. How much? I don't know the answer. I genuinely don't. How much of your entire portfolio, say now, but at any time in recent days with this volatile market that we're in, is in a short book and how much is in We're typically short about 50% of the funds under management and that's about 250 names. Right. That's quite a big short It's book. a very big short book. And so we're you're 50% long, long and, meaning and, you're betting and, those and companies and we're are going to go up. Dare I say it, about 120% of the funds under management. So we've borrowed a little bit for the longs as well. Oh. Now, if the shorts go down and the longs go up, that works wonderful. But yep. if they're correlated, as long as I don't lose money over time on the shorts, I can be 1.2 times the market and take less risk than the market. There's a lot of mathematics behind the portfolio. And I, if I was to walk you through the maths, I'd be here for the next yeah, two hours. Yeah, no, exactly. But Let's essentially, not do that. essentially, we typically run about half the book short. Okay. Short sellers are often accused, we've been through the Wirecard example, of by company managements of being wreckers, talking down a stock in order for the share price to fall. Okay. As and- a general rule, I don't talk about the stocks by name anyway. 
And the reason I don't talk about the stocks by name is the reason you didn't talk about Wirecard by name, which is that you you get into trouble by talking by name, especially when your allegation is fraud. We also short 250 different names. So every name is small, right? Like So at the moment in your portfolio, you've got about 250 companies that, that you are short. Yes. Around the world. Around the world. That's we- a huge number, it would yes, seem. Yes, the, the, it is a huge number. Fraud is very, very yeah. widespread. Yeah. Right? And but- it doesn't worry me that it's very widespread when the people that are playing are sophisticated players in large markets, right? It's a policy issue at the margin. It worries me terribly in Australia because the people that are playing are mum and pops with their super who are disengaged from their money, and that really matters. That's why Australia is, a, you know, why I'm much more concerned about it in Australia than I am in the United States, for instance, right? Because we've got this terrible policy mix of a weak ASIC strong defamation laws and very, very large pools of dumb money. Mm. You proudly say on your website you avoid broker research. Why is that? As a rule in financial markets, the crowd is mostly right, right? That is, you know, the crowd really likes Google and Apple and Amazon, et cetera, and they're probably right about all of them. As a rule in financial markets, if you bet with the crowd, just do the popular things, the conventional things. You'll make small amounts of money fairly consistently over long periods of time. But when the crowd is wrong, it's horrible. The really nasty thing to be is in a big crowded wrong trade, right? The GFC is, you know, the global financial crisis happened when the crowd was wrong about credit worthiness. The tech bust happened when the crowd was wrong about all these tech stocks going to the moon. But, you know, when you catch the bus and the chair in front of you is talking about tech stocks, you know the crowd is really onto it. And that is That's time happening to now. get out. It's <laughs> well, what we say. No. no, but it's time where if the crowd happens to be wrong, you're going to get thumped. So if you do the popular thing, you have this asymmetry, which is actually fairly career good for a fund manager, which is that you make money most of the time and you lose it in spades. And when you do unpopular things, dare I say it, you lose money most of the time, but you make it in spades. That's not career good for a fund manager. If you're a fund manager, you know you work for AMP or Colonial or somebody like that, and you're investing other people's money, it's very good to be wrong at the same time as the crowd is because nobody blames you. Right? And it's very good to be, you, know, you, you, have a, you have a bunch of career incentives to be conventional. And we're trying not to be. It's actually very hard not to be conventional. You mm. have to think for yourself. We don't use broker research is code for we do not want to be on the conventional yeah. trades. Now, it's in fact not entirely true. There are two types of broker research I use, the small type and the big type. The small type is when I find that I'm really, really, really a long way from the consensus. Say I want to short something and everybody else is long. Example is Wirecard, right? Well, what I would do is I'd go find the most bullish, reputable broker who has a strong buy on Wirecard and I'd read two or three pieces of their research. And if I think they're talking nonsense after I've read two or three pieces of their research, then that's good. Research is put away and I'm done, right? All I want to do is find the somebody that's on the other side of the trade. That happens 10 times a year, maybe eight times a year. And you don't read the broker research until you've worked out what you think is happening yourself. In other words, it's there to confirm or deny. The other type of broker research I like all the time, and this is corrupt stockbrokers. Corrupt stockbrokers. Yes. There are corrupt stockbrokers in this world. The most famous one is, of course, Stratton Oakmont because they made a wonderful film about it called The Wolf of Wall Street. In fact, we followed where all the staff of Stratton Oakmont went. The we basis po- for, the, for the film Wolf yes, of Wall Street. Yes. So, Jordan the, the, so the, there's a FINRA record for every broker in the US. They've, they've got a regulatory record that attaches to individual mm-hmm. names. And so we're very obsessive about anybody who started their career at Stratton Oakmont. 
because if they started their career at Stratton Oakmont, which was a cold calling bucket shop, they rang up rich people essentially, tried to persuade them to buy crappy stocks and stole their money. That was the business model of Stratton Oakmont. If your career started doing that when you were 25 and you're now 57 and you're the CFO of a biotech company, my guess is that it's a crappy stock. In fact, that would probably be enough to make us short a tiny bit of the biotech company, that alone. John Hempton, where did this contrarian, this entrepreneurial, this kind of sceptical streak come from? Can we just switch a little bit? What was your family life like? Like were your folks entrepreneurial? Were they... Uh, look, the, or, the, the, where did this come from? As a kid, were you always like this? There are certain key turns in my life. The first one, which was dumb luck, was working in the treasury in the golden straight era. Straight out of uni. Straight, more or less straight, out, straight of uni, out of uni. In the golden era of Ken Henry running tax policy division. And I wound up doing business tax and then I wound up doing avoidance. And avoidance is like the world's best training in dodgy accounting. What would happen to me in the Treasury is that the tax office would think that there was a massive tax avoidance scheme going. And they'd come a whole lot of documents and they'd just put them in front of me and say, we got all these on subpoena, we don't understand what's going on. And I'd in have the to, tax avoidance the, scheme, they yes. thought there was one there. Right? And they wanted government, to advise government on how this tax avoidance scheme worked. And to provide legislation to yes. stop it. right. And that was essentially the job of the t- Treasury was to advise the government on how this tax avoidance scheme worked and how you could put legislation up. But first we needed to understand the tax avoidance scheme. So they'd give you 500 pages of documents with weird accounts on them. And I'd sit down and piece them together. And sometimes there was a tax avoidance scheme there. And my instinct was that there was a tax avoidance scheme there because I had a tax man's instinct. You know, something's complicated, they're hiding things, they must be hiding it from me. And in reality, when I looked through it, there wasn't a tax avoidance scheme there. There was a financial scheme to inflate the profits to sell shares there. And that the tax and bill to was scam right. the stock market. And that they weren't scamming the tax office, they were scamming the stock market. And you smelt a rat, you just didn't smell the right rat. So that was lesson one. Lesson two was a stock chat board, which no longer exists, called the Chimes. And the Chimes was a place where a bunch of retail investors, and I was just a retail investor like everybody else, used to talk about retail stocks. Yeah, when you say that, you were working in the tax office. I was working in the treasury. Sorry. I was a bureaucrat. I was working in the treasury. working in the treasury. But I was investing 50 grand on the side, which was my life savings. This is in in your 20s. In my 20s, in in the stock market. And that was sort of a hobby. And I read all the standard books, you know, the Warren Buffett biographies, the Ben Graham books. My favorite one, which is a book called Common Stocks and Common Profits by Phil Fisher, which I will recommend every day of the week. I'd read all the standard books, the sort of standard investing canon. And this tech bubble started popping along and some really weird companies started up. And the one that really grabbed us was a company called VoiceNet. And VoiceNet had a market cap of about $700 million in Australia, and it allegedly provided software for speech recognition services, right? You talk into a computer and it recognises your speech and translates it. Sorry, John, this is late 90s. Late 90s. You're still in I'm still in Treasury. Treasury. I was a public servant. They claimed that one of their customers was a big Chilean telephone company and that they did software recognition in Spanish. And there was a guy in the group who's now a medical specialist in Melbourne who happened to speak Spanish. So we literally rang up every Chilean telephone company and asked. This is in your online chat group? Yes, fairly sophisticated. Amateur amateur investors. Amateur investors. Right, and um, uh, Simon Ma, who's the other half of Bronte, and I met on this online chat group. Right. Um, I like to, you know, when when people ask about how Simon and I met, the answer is we met online. <laughs> <laughs> right. But but not in that way. Not in that way. But nonetheless, we yeah, met online. Yeah, you did meet online. But we worked out that this was a fraud. Right. That it was faking its sales. And VoiceNet has long gone. It was actually an ASX 200 stock at the peak. But it was the first time I'd seen a tech stock be a complete fraud. 
Now it turns and out, and you'd worked it out. You we and worked this it out. Group. And I, I was pr- primed but, because I'd been looking at these yes. tax documents, which showed that people faked their profits. But right? nobody else had worked it out in oh, the no, Australian no, the, market. The, the, the truth or, is, other people had, but it's hard to do. Yeah, right. And let's face it: if you had shorted it, the stock just went up and up and up because of the tech. Right, so you would have been squeezed out of it, just like we were squeezed out of Wirecard. It's yeah. not easy to do. Yeah. The question of how you do it is a really hard question. But nonetheless, we worked out that VoiceNet was a fraud. Now, VoiceNet did a 30-day roadshow in selling their stock to investors along with another company called Learnout and Houseby. And Learnout and Houseby turns out to be a central stock in my life. Learnout and Houseby was a Belgian speech recognition software company. It came from Flanders, an area where they speak about six languages in one valley. And the idea that they could demonstrate in 1999 the holy grail of speech recognition, which is that you speak into a phone in one language, the computer recognizes it, runs it through a translation program, and it speaks out in another language. That's the holy grail of speech recognition. It's hard to do because idiom is hard to do. My favorite example of that is if you translate the, there was a while where you put the phrase out of sight, out of mind into a translator program, translated English to Russian and back to English. And it came back as invisible insanity. (laughs) Because I guess out of sight is invisible and out of mind is insane. Yeah. Right. Now. Back to Learn Out and Housebeat. But Learn Out and Housebeat demonstrated this. And there was a short seller I'd never met who's now one of my role models in life, a man called Mark Cahodes, possibly the most famous short seller in the world. And Mark was telling everyone that Learn Out and Housebeat was a fraud. And I knew he was right. And the reason I knew he was right was that they did a roadshow for 30 days with VoiceNet. And we knew that VoiceNet was a fraud. And if I, I don't know anything about you, but if I went on a roadshow with you for 30 days and stayed in the same hotels and talked to the same people and sold my story every day for 30 days, and I was an expert on voice recognition software, and you were an expert on voice recognition software, and you were a fraud, I'd work it out. And the only way that they ever stayed on a roadshow together was that they were both frauds. So I now knew for certain that Learn Out and Houseby was a fraud. And that was a big thing because Learn Out and Houseby was the hottest tech stock in Europe. It was the biggest fraud in Europe ever until Wirecard came along. And it had Microsoft and Intel as investors. So they had defrauded Microsoft and Intel. It had a market capitalization of about $35 billion. And it was a very impressive demonstration. You walked into a room and it was covered with servers that were flashing, you know, computers. This is how they enticed investors in. Servers a la a 1999 James Bond film with flashing lights and Star Treks and computers (sighs) with glistening things that went backwards and forwards. There's a whole wall of them. And they'd pull somebody out and you'd say a few words and then it would translate it and come out the phone in French. Very impressive. And the French idiom wasn't quite right, but it was okay. It wasn't invisible insanity bad. It was okay. And it turns out that they were literally doing it in Wizard of Oz style with a man behind the curtain typing. What? And this was the biggest tech stock in Europe. So that was a very, very, very deliberate oh, yeah. big fraud. Yes, and everybody they went set to, out to... Everyone went to prison, although the VoiceNet people in Australia didn't. Okay, why was it big for you? Had you because, because you worked it out, worked or because you'd made money on it? I worked it out, and I made money on it. I made I actually made a quarter of a million dollars on it, which was an astonishing amount of money for me at the time. Remember, I had just left the public service, so I earned two. I made two and a half years income on it. It was the first time. In fact, it was a lottery ticket that sort of weirdly changed my life, and it took me a long time to work out that I'd done it all wrong. Incidentally because it paid so well that it took me a while to work out that I actually didn't do it right and the risk management was horrible and all sorts of things were horrible, right? And it took me a while to fix up all the the trading maths around it. I would have made less money on it now, much less, but I would have taken much less risk. Yeah. But it was interesting to me because it showed me that very, very big companies could be frauds. Not only could Alan Bond fool the relatively unsophisticated Australian market, 
and he did, right? But it showed me that you could fool Microsoft and Intel on a technology stock. And that was a revelation to me. You then eventually got a job at Platinum Asset Management. Oh, that was dumb luck. I'd been wanting a job in asset management for ages. I'd worked out, I'd been a public servant, but investing in shares on the side. And you'd made a fair whack of dough. Oh, I'd made some money. And to be fair about it, a lot of what I did when I was a retail investor, I would regard as stupid now, right? What, risky behaviours, risky, risky investor risk, behaviour. Risky behaviour. There's a lot of things that I did in that period that I regard now as dumb luck, right? But it took me a while to work out that they were dumb luck. But I kept wanting a job in funds management and I kept applying. And I applied to all the obvious places, Colonial Mutual, you know, MLC, every, right? And I never got an interview. Never got an interview. Not a single interview. And then I ran into a headhunter on a ferry in Sydney and I chatted to them and they said, I can get you an interview, right? And they decided fairly quickly I was worth an interview and I got an interview with Care Nielsen he offered me a job on the spot. I later became a partner of Platinum Asset Management and it's a good semi-conventional fund manager. It was a little bit different. It was not as anything like as different as Bronte is. And it also manages $30 billion and we only manage 3% of that. Yeah, right? and it's and been enormously successful. Yes, but we don't want to duplicate it. I want to be more unconventional than that and that generally means that I have to be smaller. All right, but what did you learn, I guess, from Care Nielsen that you brought with oh, you to Bronte Capital? You've talked an about indescribable him. indescribable as- number of things. Mm-hmm. You've talked Firstly, about him being a it, brilliant influence. Yeah, no, no, he, he, he was extremely good at things, but not particularly good with people. And so you watched what he did right and what he did wrong. The idea of being a small but important part of a big thing is pure care, but he wouldn't have said it so articulate as I did, right? That is, he would do it and it was in the back of his head, but he hadn't elucidated why and why it works and why it doesn't and where it doesn't work. And so Care was very, very good at things, but not very good at articulating them and not very good at managing people. In his team. Right. And so the, the trick with Care was to try and work out all the things that he was good at and decipher them to some kind of formula. And I'm not close, but I've done a few things. He, he's brilliant. And then also to work out all the things that he's bad at and try and be better at them than him. And... There are several things he's bad at as well, and they all come from his personality. So, I mean, Care is incredibly honest, incredibly hardworking. I love the guy to death, but I wouldn't want to work for him. He's difficult. He right. may well listen to this, so I'm sure you probably yeah, okay. well, I'll tell you, this I'll, to I'll him. I'll tell you something that he's not very good at, and that is adjusting when we're wrong. And here's the issue. If you're a junior analyst at Platinum, your job is to get something into the portfolio and it's really, really hard, right? And So to the, prove your case on a stock. Prove your case, get it argued, get it into the portfolio. He gives you a hard time. It's horrible. Intellectual pro- rigour. Intell- yep, right? It's really horrible. All that horribleness is for a good purpose. The intellectual rigour is hard to deal with and it's tricky. And it does mean that Platinum is an extremely good initial picker of a stock. I would argue that they're probably the best initial picker of the stock of anybody I've ever seen anywhere. However, I put it in the portfolio for this and I've completely bet my career on it, right? You know, I've, this is- So X company, you go to care and say, we've got to have this in our portfolio, you've got to buy it. And it's a month's work, right? Yeah. Uh, it's it's emotionally one of the more draining things you'll ever do. It's a, it, an intellectually rigorous process of the yeah. highest order. Quite often, you put it in for reason X and X is wrong. And the right thing to do is suck it up, say, I got it wrong. Here's the re- reason I got it wrong. It's down 10%. And we should be out of it. And we should get out. In other words, you should be allowed to change your mind when the facts change. And because it's so hard to deal with care because of the first bit, it became very hard to say to him, I was wrong, therefore we should change. But the initial picking, I wanted to steal all the things that are good about it, 
but I also want to make sure that we have a process for changing our mind. You started your own shop, your yes. own outfit in 2009, in the midst of a GFC. Um, <laughs> our timing was, our timing was impeccable. Crisis. Famously, we went to New, I had a deal where people were going to fund us to start it. And I had a little bit of a reputation. And so we, we were going to get about $100 million in. They were going to give them some From of the equity. From high net worth. Oh, you mean like From shareholders, investors? Investors who are going to own part of my business, yep. but in exchange they're also going to be the foundation clients. Right. And so, so they're we high were, net worth individuals. Yes, and including, well, Carl Icahn was one of them, hmm. right? You know, who I remember, richest, but one of our- One of the richest guys in the world. We hmm. actually had a handshake deal that he was going to back the formation of our business, and Carl knew who I was. Don't ask how Carl knew who I was, but Carl knew who this obscure Australian analyst was. Right. And we get there to sign the deal literally the week that Lehman fails. <gasps> and so Simon and I were walking around New York like dumb and dumber <laughs> and all our dreams were evaporating in front of us. It was quite a – the start of Bronte as a business was rather difficult. Very sobering. Yes. Um, okay, nonetheless you did. It, 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 it turned out it was a good thing. And the reason was that we would have had a nice easy start because we'd have been profitable from day one, but we would have given up a lot of the equity in the business, right? So we wouldn't have owned it all. And, you know, when Platinum was started, the initial investor was George Soros and George owned part of the business. And when Bronte was started, Carl Icahn would have owned part of the business. He didn't? He didn't. He didn't sign. He didn't sign because, <sighs> because that was the year that, that was the Lehman Yeah. Week. Yeah. And as it turned out, ex post, 10 years later, it's very nice for me that Carl doesn't own yeah. it. Carl, you made a mistake. <laughs> if you're listening to me. Since then, how do you measure the success and the performance of your fund? Say, Look, since we've how run, would you describe it? We've basically kept up with a wild bull market, right? But we've run only about 0.4 beta, which means that on the face of it, we've taken about 40% of the market risk. Right, and made roughly the market return, which is a good outcome, but so, it doesn't look great no. because the market's gone up so far. If the market had been sideways, right, then making the same right because if the market, I mean, in jet in March when the market went down, we made money, right? That was during the Corona month. In the two thousand and eighteen route in December where there was a little dip, we made money. And the taper tantrum, which was a, you've forgotten this, this was a little period where the Fed was tightening and the market didn't like it, we made money. In fact, in every substantial downturn of the market, we've made money. Right, but, but the truth is, but, uh, but the truth is, over the last decade, the right thing to do wasn't short sell, right? The right thing to do for the last decade was buy the winner-takes-all stocks and do nothing else. And had we bought the winner-takes-all stocks and short-selled and levered the winner-takes-all stocks, our returns would have been completely astonishing. But we didn't get that right. But if you look at it, we took sort of 0.4 the market risk and made the market return. It's, but, it's but, an okay outcome. But, but you it's not, said you may you charge very, very high fees. That's after our high fees. Right. right? So that's net of fees. That's net of our high You do fees. the same as the market. Yeah. But, so why but, wouldn't... But, well, the answer is you wouldn't if you knew that the market was going to go straight up for the next 10 years. Mm. You wouldn't invest in us. Mm. But if you don't think the market's going straight up for the next 10 years, then we're a very nice place to be. Right. Right? But we are probably objectively close to the world's best short sellers. And On whose measure? Well, one measure, there's a firm called Novus that does portfolio measurement, taking micro things, and we've run our accounts through them. And they thought that we were 17 percentage points better than the market on short selling, which is a lot. 17 percentage points annual mm. is Warren Buffett levels of excess return. But it was Warren Buffett levels of excess return against the market if you were short, you would have lost 13 points per year, right? In other words, right. Right, who cares about being the world's best short seller when the market goes straight up? Yeah. You care about being the world's best short seller when the market goes sideways or down. And we've got that sort of volatility Who knows? at the moment. Who knows? I don't know. I mean, if you'd asked me, this has been the longest bull market from the bottom of the GFC to now. Yeah. The market's at all-time highs. So you don't, you don't call it a bear market now? No. no. The market's at all-time highs. Yeah. Right? 
if you had told me 10 years ago that I'd come back in 10 years and the market would be at all-time highs without any substantial sustained downturn, I wouldn't have picked my strategy, yeah. right? We picked the right strategy for the wrong time, right? And we did okay, but we did okay against an environment that was massively hostile to short sellers, just massively hostile. And, you know... But you're going to stick with that strategy. Well, at the moment, I'm almost prepared to double down on it because the market's so goddamn expensive, right? Mm. You know, and the market's gone up more or less straight line for 10 years, and it hasn't been a straight line. There's been dips, but nonetheless, it's the market's... Nothing's cheap at the moment, yeah. right? I mean, I joke about Sydney property being ludicrously expensive, and anybody that wants to try and buy a Sydney house understands that. But in fact, asset class after asset class after asset class is just as ludicrously expensive, mm. right? When the market's gone straight up for ten years, yeah, do I do I think the next ten years the market's going to go straight up again? No, <laughs> right? But could I be wrong? Absolutely, I could be wrong. Right? I've been wrong for the last few years. Right? I mean, I thought the market had peaked in 2018. Right? I thought that little dip in, into February 2018 before they cut interest rates one more time was the end. I have been consistently wrong about the market direction. And if I continue to be consistently wrong, meaning the market keeps going straight up for the next 10 years, I've got the wrong strategy. I just have to accept that. And I mean, seriously, we, it doesn't seem to matter, meaning we have had adequate returns in a hostile environment. For short sellers. For short yeah. sellers. If we had a really good environment, we would have adequate returns and everybody else wouldn't. But I mean, the reason we short sell, we told you earlier, was that when the mark, Warren Buffett sits there holding cash, holding cash, holding yeah. cash, holding cash. And he's also done the wrong thing. He should have just invested every bit of that cash all the way. Exactly. Right? He's done the wrong thing too. We're in the same bucket. And we sit there with shorts, 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 that hopefully turn to cash when the market falls down. Warren's got all this cash. He's hoping to invest it when the market turns down. We have this shorts and we're hoping to invest it all when the market turns down. And in a very big picture sense, the market never really turned down. And yes, it dropped a bit into Krona, but it dropped to a level that if I was looking at it from the perspective of a 2013 investor, was still massively high. It was still expensive mm. at the bottom of Krona, right? Mm. It was just not as expensive as it is now. Can I ask you just a couple of questions? Sorry, this is this briefly. animates no. me quite a lot. No, no, it's, it's annoying, right? But you know, the same mistake. Warren Buffett you- is criticised all the time for holding cash. Yeah, and you can criticise us for holding shorts, right? Now, his cash hasn't cost him much, and our shorts have made us a small amount, right? But I mean, a small amount. It's not been a good strategy. It's, I mean, you make seventeen percent against a market that's up thirteen. Well, you know, I, I make a few percent a year short selling for an enormous amount of effort. In a different year, I'm going to make 35% short selling when the market's down. And that 35% I'm going to use to buy Crota at a price that yeah. is respectable, where Crota is not trading at a price that's respectable now, or L'Oreal or yeah. Zero or whatever it is. I mean, I love Zero, but I'm not buying it at this price. Too I love expensive. Visa. Yeah, everything's too expensive. Can I just ask you a couple of relatively quick fire yep. questions, some of which I'm asking all my guests, but your key to investing well for a young investor, is it that go for the solid company that <laughs> makes the the key thing in a bigger? Yeah, okay. There are two ways of doing it. One way is the high, high touch way and one way is the low touch way. The low touch way is simple, buy indexes, use the 60-40 rule. Right, which and is what Warren Buffett told his wife to do. Yeah, right. If you're not going to be an if you're not going to be an expert, accept that you're not an expert, and experts will fleece you. Right. So now the classic sixty forty rule, and you have to modify it for Australia, but the modifications will make sense. I'm not going to go through the details no. of them, but the idea of the sixty forty rule was that you took an American portfolio that was sixty percent stocks and forty percent Lehman bond index or whatever the bond index. It's not the Lehman bond index no. anymore, but it was the Lehman bond index for years. And every month you'd rebalance so that if the equities went up, you would now be, say, 63% stocks and 37% bond index. So you sold some equities and bought some bonds. And if the equities went down, you would now only be 55% equities and 45% bonds. So you sold some bonds and you bought some stocks. And the net effect of which is that you wound up buying more stocks when the market was low and selling more stocks when the market was high. 
and this rebalancing effect worked in your favour and the returns were very adequate. And if you go talk to an endowment like Harvard, who's managing $40 billion, their benchmark is a 60-40 portfolio, modified for international things, but it's essentially a 60-40 portfolio benchmark. And if I were a know-nothing investor that wasn't wanting to spend a lot of time, what I would do is i cut my fees to ribbons by, by choosing the cheapest index I can find, right? You can get that down to four basis points of cost. And then I would just rebalance regularly, right? And that's the only transaction I would ever do. And it would be brain dead. You could make it automatic. Sorry, that's all in index funds. All in index yeah. funds. Nothing, right? Don't choose a stock at all, right? You don't want to compete against me choosing stocks. I promise you, you do not want to compete against me. I'll beat you, right? Now, the alternative is to actually get to something where you can have a reasonable hope of beating people like me. And the reasonable hope of beating people like me is focus on a few industries that you know really, really, really well. And they have to be good industries, right? They have to be ones that make excess returns. And you have to ask yourself, why is this thing bigger and better in 10 years? And how certain am I about that? And when you've got your ducks lined up, put a, take a very big position, 30% of your wealth, right? But you have to take it with the idea of, of a punch card where you have 10 investments on a punch card and that's all you're allowed to make for the rest of your life, right? And that'll focus the mind. You, do, you don't have to be invested. The rest of the time, just buy a 60-40 portfolio, right? So you, you start and with a 60- this is maybe as a 25-year-old. Yeah. So not yeah, as a 60-year-old. So, yeah. Or, or a 50-year-old. If you're a 50-year-old who can't spend all day doing it, right? If you Nor do you want to lose your capital. Then, then go 60-40 yourself. Yeah. Right. And I, I, here am I selling funds management services and charging high fees. And I'm telling people, you either have, if you're going to invest in an asset manager, invest in someone like me and we're closed. Right. So, you yeah, so can't I know invest it's it, right? not an ad. But you find something like that, or you just cut the fees to ribbons and buy a 60 40 portfolio. Right. And if you're a wanting to be an investor, learn about industries really well and be able to ask the question, what's it look like in two years, five years, 10 years? And you need to be, if not the smartest person in the room, certainly smarter than average and a lot smarter than average. And focus on things that are good businesses. So good businesses have winner-take-all characteristics or small parts of big things or some kind of network effect like Facebook where if you wanted to compete against Facebook, it's almost impossible because everybody's on Facebook, and, right? Some, something that keeps the competition out, right? Okay. But, I mean, that's a hard ask. Now, I chose the hard ask, and the hard ask led to a very interesting career. But I wish I'd known at 25 what I know now, because I sure as hell didn't. I was very bad at this. But, you know, I, and I actually probably wasn't very bad. I'm just better at it now. The hard path is not a path I recommend to a lot yeah. of people. If, you, if something's not worth doing, it's not worth doing well. Do you have a business motto? In no. running and sustaining your business? No, no. Or no. principles or? No, no, not at all. I mean, I've told you a lot, right? I mean, if I had a motto at all, it's on the long side, it's find all of care's good characteristics, do them. Find all of care's bad characteristics, undo them, right? And I, if I came close to that, I'd be the world's best investor because really care's good characteristics are so good. And when you say care, you mean Care Nielsen, yes. who founded and right. runs Platinum Asset yeah. Management. If I had a, a recipe on the short side, it's how do I automate the discovery of every bad person in the world in financial markets and short two bits of them? And I want to have 500 shorts and I just want to use computers. What's the biggest thing you think you've learned in your career? Find good bosses. Right. Early on, find good mentors. I... I Dumb luck, I had two of the greatest bosses you could ever imagine. Care Nielsen, who is an unbelievably good person to learn from, but a horrible person to work for. And Ken Henry, who's an unbelievably good person to learn from and a wonderful person to work for. And a great now, Australian. And a great Australian. But I, I, I mean, I now those bosses, both of them valued my eccentricities, right? And... Ken in particular really liked the fact that there was somebody at the Treasury who five times a year really disagreed with the Treasury line and was right three of them, 
that was a very valuable feature in a boss. But, you know, I've built a business by being eccentric. So having bosses that valued my eccentricities was useful. But no, in seriousness, you either start your own business very young or you have extremely good bosses and you learn from them. And I took the latter view. I wish I'd started the business younger too, but, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. How would you describe yourself, your way of thinking? You've just said eccentric, and I've heard that used about you before, but say in a sentence. Look, we're actually, eccentric's the right word. We're actually in a career where unconventional views with good risk management is a very good way of doing it. And I did say with good risk management. Right, so the risk management is Simon, who's the other half, and Simon. So he's your breaks. Yep, Simon. That the good partner is a very important part, but Simon was the CEO of a utility. Right, he was the CEO of Southern Hydro. Hydro. And if you run a utility, it's a pretty buttoned-down job. You've got to make sure the electricity machines work. You've got right. Think of conventional. You know, business careers being yeah, the you CEO. You don't take risks with yeah, uh, being a utility. CEO, being the CEO of a utility, and in fact, this was an energy trading utility, so it had a bunch of financial risks that were tricky to manage. So he learned a lot about risk management as well. But he's the absolute foil to me, right? And if you're going to do what we did, which is genuinely run a business by being an out there eccentric, you do need somebody like Simon. I hate it. I hate it. It's like his job is to constrain me. So he says, pull your head in, John. Yes, or- yes. Right. He's the only person in the business who's allowed to tell me what to do, and he does, right? And, I mean, he also- So you hate it, you say, but I that's hate- how it's worked yeah, and it worked to, well. It, ha- it has to be like that. It is really nice to be able to run an intellectual business and not give a shit about how other people think and how far from the crowd you are. But it's not sustainable without a sign, right? And it's not sustainable to be as eccentric as I am without my wife being very straight as well. <laughs> right? So, but I mean, that's unusual. I don't know many people. I mean, eccentricity in business founders is not a bad thing. But, you know, Silicon Valley also has a process of giving these eccentric business founders conventional adult supervision, as they call it. Right. So, you know, Ruth Poirot, who is the, um, CFO of Google, right? Chief Financial Officer of Google, came from Goldman Sachs, right? She's the adult supervision these days. But before that, they had some other adult supervision, right? The eccentricities of the founders are really good things. I mean, right? So I don't think being eccentric is a bad thing. In fact, I think it's an outrageously good thing. But you have to work out how to control it. And I have my control mechanism and I've signed up for it. And Simon is it. But we are out-of-the-box thinkers with a completely in-the-box control mechanism. We spend so much time on the control mechanisms you have, you know, on the risk management stuff. You have no idea how much there is. John Hempton, it is a great pleasure to have spent this time with you. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.